Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. There's a day long that'll be dealing with compulsive behaviors, and that's happening this July 21st. It'll be in New York at New York Insight, and that's on a Sunday from 10 to 4. Then we have a retreat with some myself and a wonderful teacher, Jessica Moray, and that'll be at Garrison Institute in, I believe, September 26th to 29th, a weekend from a Thursday to a Sunday, a lot of hiking trails. That retreat is on learning how to self-soothe and stress reduction. So. Um, do either that one or we have one at the end of October at Wan Dharma. So the info will be up on the Dharma Punks with an X NYC website. So uh, one of those, if you're interested in getting away and uh, doing some a spiritual retreat, it's deeply baked in that if we understand how things work, it should give us a degree of efficacy and. Uh, and ability to change things for the better. You know, the idea is if we understand the left hemisphere of the brain, the dominant hemisphere of our brain is a causal mechanism that looks for the underlying causes for why things happen. And the idea of the dominant hemisphere is that if we figure out why bad things happen in life, we can avoid what causes them and then we will be able to have less distress in our life. This is certainly the same basic principle of early therapeutic modalities, which uh, certainly from psychoanalysis and the work of Freud was based on the idea that if you could uncover the blocked memories of emotional wounds in childhood, and you understand or un could understand what were the uh, original abandonments, disappointments, lack of attunement, the feelings of being shamed or rejected, that in understanding what happened, it would allow you then to uh, essentially um, change. Freud even noted that the the return of the repressed that happens in therapy where gradually over time people reclaim blocked memories when they understand the wounds that happen to them would allow them to have significant change and that they would no longer wind up uh, stuck in unhappy patterns in their life. It sounds like it should work. The problem is that from almost the very beginning Freud realized that something wasn't working. And in 1914, no more than 15 years after he formulated the interpretation of dreams and his, the basic principles of his therapies, he noted that people had this weird tendency that no matter how much they learned about themselves, no matter how much they uncovered, they still had a tendency to repeat the same patterns. Uh, people who have a habit, uh, not a habit, a routine or a, an ingrained pattern of chasing for love from people who are intimacy avoidant or are emotionally unkind. People who have addictions and learned about the wounds in childhood that made them mistrust people and became alcoholic or drug addicts continued to drink even though they understood why the generative events that caused them emotional harm. So Freud, and it's amazing in, a, in an ironic way that one of Freud's lastingly wonderful contributions uh, came uh, in explaining why uh, much of psychoanalysis didn't work. In, in his theory of repetition compulsion, he offered a wonderful insight, which is that 
repetitions, repeating the same patterns. For example, a young girl who grows up in a family where the father is narcissistic, distant, only offers attention when the child is paying attention to the father or taking care of the father, but doesn't ever pay attention when the child seeks to be seen on her own, for her own value, her own creativity, her own, her own uh, authentic impulses. So she will uh, be harmed and wounded by all these emotional abandonments in childhood, yet she will, of course, as an adult, continue to seek love from narcissistic, emotionally remote partners. Why? Why would, you, why would anybody want to continue that pattern? Well, of course, a very basic understanding is that the right hemisphere is formed during our early years and that it we learn what love is in those early years of life and the right hemisphere will continue to guide us towards that and that's very true but also Freud noted that there's an attempt to master things that harmed us early on in life early on in childhood if we are abandoned mistreated unloved not taken care of not uh, unacknowledged uh, we are essentially passive victims. In adult life, we have a greater degree of feelings of agency. So unconsciously, we believe, oh, this time, if I wind up with the same type of man or the same type of partner, this time I'll figure out how to make it work. This time I won't be emotionally abandoned. This time I won't, you know, uh, be you know constantly chasing for validation from somebody who's only interested in narcissistic supplies and it doesn't work it doesn't work for a number of reasons one you it's impossible to uh, once people are in that dynamic they don't change their partners and the the real irony of it is if if a woman grew up in an abandoning childhood with a narcissistic father and she tries to master that situation by dating and seeking love from emotionally distant men, what will happen is either one, she'll never get loved and she'll keep trying to get it from these people or B, she might actually somehow magically get one guy to change. But guess what happens then? Any guess? She'll get bored. He no longer represents the unavailable father. Oh, who is this wimp who's now paying attention to me? He's not the, the, the man I thought I was, etc. So either way, she doesn't wind up with the love and attention that all human beings need to thrive. So a new attachment theorists call it internal working models essentially in early life we have implicit learnings what are implicit learnings implicit learnings are things like how to walk how to brush your teeth how to run how to sit up and stand down they're basic behaviors and these behaviors are wired really really early in life so early you don't none of us remember how we learned how to walk or how we learned how to sit up or stand or run or how we learned to breathe etc we just learned well we all knew how to breathe but we learned all, all these other activities uh, essentially at one point in childhood but by the time we become adult life they are implicitly wired we know how to do them but we never can remember the original events where we learn them and we don't even think about them while we do them they are hardwired into region called the basal ganglia they happen automatically you don't have to think about okay i have to now stand up dharma pumps is over how do i do that you just stand well a lot of other behaviors besides sitting and walking and talking are implicit who you seek love from which situations you will find scary what you expect of other people what you expect from important relationships in your life when you should panic and when you should feel confident these are also implicit learnings they were learned in early interpersonal dynamics well before your conscious narrative memories were formed 
and they are deeply wired in your right subdominant hemisphere. These implicit learnings which create the most fundamentally important behaviors in our life, like which type of situations we will gravitate towards, which kind of opportunities we will pursue, which opportunities we will feel overwhelmed by, which kind of social situations we will feel comfortable in, and which kind of social situations we will feel over, uh, we will feel, un, you know, a, a degree of discomfort in, are wired and are in this part of the region of the brain that is inaccessible to the conscious mind. And these beliefs or learnings happen so early that they cannot be simply changed by understanding what caused them. I could sit and probably any counselor, therapist, psychologist could sit with anyone and in a matter of a couple of sessions uncover the generative events that lead to any repetitive symptom in anybody's life, and guess what? Nothing will change. Because all of the <clears throat> implicit learnings are unreachable by knowledge, language, or all that left hemispheric stuff. Your consciousness can't reach them. These are subcortical, hardwired networks that are absolutely immune to reasoning. You could tell an addict, oh my God, you are shooting up, uh, you know, spending all your money, ruining your health, losing all your relationships, and they'll go, I know, I know exactly why my parents didn't love me, and, but they will continue to do that because they, the patterns are deeply wired. The older the implicit learnings, the harder they are to override. The longer they've been neurally essentially established, the more difficult it is, even through forced repetition, to change. Because under stress, people will invariably revert back to those early hardwired implicit learnings. For example, in childhood, somebody feels emotionally not seen by their parents. The only way they feel taken care of is by feeding themselves because it reminds them of the time when their parents did take care of them. And so they begin to binge eat whenever they feel lonely or stressed out or emotionally abandoned in life. So they go to OA, they might go to therapy, they learn about the emotional abandonments of childhood, they actually start talking with other people, but suppose one day they go there in a relationship, their partner suddenly abandons them, there's no OA meeting available to them, their therapist, it's August, their therapist on, is on vacation, the stress ratchets up, guess who's going to be binging and purging very quickly as a way to feel safe and feel taken care of? they will revert back to the originally hardwired networks that are implicitly wired. So, changing, uh, and if we do try to change these implicitly wired learnings, it causes a lot of stress. And even little things like uh, uh, somebody who to get in to feel the emotional permission to go into a job they don't really like it's a stressful job so every day is a way to boost their dopamine and to create a sense of reward in the uh what is it the ventral tagmental system of the brain they uh they go to a donut shop and they have a donut before work but then they start putting on weight and they get very concerned about that so they try not to eat a donut before they go to work. Guess what? That simple choice, because it's become wired, will become very difficult. It will be very stressful for a long period of time because it's now wired into their basal ganglia and the very motor neurons of the brain. On, your, on my way to work, I have to raise my dopamine levels by eating a donut. So all effectual therapies today uh, are not really based anymore on the, the, 
the sole principle of talk therapy, which is that if you uncover the uh, dynamics that or the events that led to the emotional abandonments of childhood and the defense mechanisms that we employ to feel less abandoned or less vulnerable and alone, that somehow that will magically lead to change. We won't, we won't fall back on these repetitive behaviors. We won't seek love from unavailable people. We won't wind up in jobs that work us to death. We won't wind up binging on shopping or uh, gambling or whatever. Today, the dominant modalities that people use address repetition compulsion and ingrained patterns from by addressing where they live in the subdominant hemisphere, the right hemisphere, through the body. If we look at almost all of the major advances, if we look at the work of Bessel van der Kolk, the great trauma therapist, his work, The Body Keeps the Score, and all the modalities he talks about are somatically based. He talks about the efficacy of doing movement therapies, somatic therapies. He does long uh, interviews with Peter Levine, the great somatic experiencing therapist who's done breakthroughs and trauma work. The great Pat Ogden, who's, I, I love her, her work uh, merges somatic and attachment theory and has been so successful in addressing a wide array of deeply ingrained repetitious behaviors. Her work is by changing the way people hold their bodies, literally addressing how childhood wounds are literally kept alive and our feelings of vulnerability and our defense mechanisms and our fears and our behavioral patterns are literally kept in the posture and in the very basic movements we take. This is essential because the right hemisphere speaks to us somatically through the body. Diana Fosha, AEDP therapies, and Leslie Greenberg, emotionally focused therapies, all work with connecting with the underlying affects that speak to us through our bodies as the agency of change. The idea is, in, for instance, if somebody winds up in a situation where they are constantly being abused and mistreated in their life, it's because they have learned to uh, repress their anger, which is a naturally occurring affect and, uh, in their theory. And so the idea is that if they can get clients in touch with affects that they have blocked, that they will have significant changes. Simply telling somebody, oh, the relationship you're in or this work dynamic you're in is abusive, get out, you're hurting yourself, nothing will change. They'll keep going back in because they've been wired to go back in to that, that damaging situation. But if you change the way people feel, the, the affects, if you change the way they hold their body, if you change literally where they block and store all of the, the impulses to survive, they blocked off in childhood. If you can free and liberate those energies, then you can lead to substantial changes. So obviously I can't give a talk on all of the modalities. I actually, it is my work, I'm familiar with them all because I use them all in, in my work. I steal shamelessly. But um, I'm going to talk briefly about three and then in our meditation we're going to practice some of them. So the first is Carl Rogers, the great humanist psychologist of the 1950s, one of my heroes. He was the first to stop referring to uh, patients as analysis or patients. He refused to use those words. He used the word clients. His work was based on the idea, uh, and I love his theory, very simple. When you hear it, it's so obvious, you, you, you'll think, oh my God, he can't have been the first that, <laughs> ca that came up with this. But um, So his idea was that self-actualization to lead an authentic life requires not just acting in line with your thoughts and some of your beliefs, but also learning to integrate how you feel into your life and into your choices. 
this should not be a woohoo moment, but actually when he came up with this, he was, uh, many psychologists vilified him. The basic, his basic theme was that we all have what he called a self-conscious, a self-concept, which is a, a view of ourselves that we want other people to see. You know, I want you to think of me as vaguely informed Buddhist guy, caring, you know, uh, I don't care also if we add in neurotic Jew from the Upper West Side. Uh, I've learned to bring all of that into my self-concept. But we all hide certain impulses or feelings from our self-concept, what we show other people. The social mask conceals feelings of insecurity, vulnerability, loneliness, uh, feelings of doubt, feelings of unlovableness. And we don't want other people to see these because we believe, from, stemming from early childhood interpersonal abandonments, times we were wounded in playgrounds or in other in relationships that followed, we believe if other people see these impulses or feelings, we will be rejected. And that creates um, a, what he used the term incongruity. Uh, I'm not sure it's the best word, but I'll use it in honor of Rogers. Rogers said, the more that our self-concept, which is the, the me I want you to see, is different from my felt experience, the way I actually feel internally, the greater the difference, the more anxiety I will experience. Anxiety is the direct result of there being an incongruity between the person I show to others versus all of the feelings I experience on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And in uh, his theory, the only way to address anxiety and emotional distress is to learn in therapy first and then interpersonally to own the way we feel and disclose it and not hide it from other people. And we see that this works all the time. If I was nervous speaking to you in public, the thing that would make it the worst would be to try to conceal my nervousness. Studies have shown, skin valence studies have shown, Bruce Hood's work has shown that the more I try to conceal parts of myself from you, the more anxiety I will feel, the less comfortable and the more I will rely on defense mechanisms to protect myself. On the other hand, if I was nervous about speaking in public and I wanted my anxiety to go down, the only thing I would have to do would be to sit up here and say, I'm nervous. And guess what? A significant degree of the skin valence and the degree of anxiety would be, as a result, modulated by that simple disclosure. So Roger's theory is pretty straightforward. The key to therapy and to healing is to find the feelings that we've been blocking that are associated with choices and behaviors that are repeated patterns, to connect with them, to disclose them first to people that are safe and understanding so that we will not rely on defense mechanisms, which in his view, the defenses are what keeps the repetition in place. Let me give you a concrete example. If somebody is in relationships in early life so terrified of rejection that they constantly are withholding key parts of their nervousness, their, their worry about being rejected, their fears of abandonment, and so they never express their own needs and they only hint at what makes them safe to their partner, then they will continue because of those defenses to get wind up with people who are emotionally unavailable and they will never get their needs met. But if they finally learn to connect with those deeply buried needs, feel them, disclose them first in a therapist's office or maybe in an SLAA meeting or whatever, and then reveal them to their partner not only will they be less nervous and anxious and, you know, frightened in, uh, with potential romantic partners, but they actually will stand a far greater chance of getting those needs met. 
So that's the, a basic summary of Rogers. Eugene Genlin was a great friend of Rogers, and he came up with a slightly more advanced uh, take on it. Genlin was a major philosopher, and then later on in life became a psychologist. Uh, and he developed a tool called focusing. And focusing is really kind of cool in that it's been shown to be very effective and leads, and it can be very effective with people who are stuck in deeply ingrained patterns. When I explain it, it's going to sound kindly, kind of fakaka, that's a Jewish term, but uh, maybe I can explain why it works. So in a Eugene Genlin focusing session, what you would do would be to talk about it first, just reveal something in your life that causes a great degree of distress. For example, you're a very talented photographer, but whenever it comes time to enter your work in a contest or show your work to a magazine or try to reveal your work to even people that might be able to help you get a gallery, you're overwhelmed with, uh, you delay, you stall, you become perfectionist, you won't do it. You just will do anything but take this liberating growth choice in your life. So in a Eugene Genlin session, you would go, okay, what I want you to do is just bring to mind this struggle, which is that you procrastinate about your photography, and just think about taking that big step and I want you to feel what happens in your body. And that's it. Don't go into the whole story. Just visualize yourself taking a risk and then feel what's going on somatically in your belly, in your throat, in your face, in your heart. Is your heart racing, etc. Once you connect with what he called the felt sense, then what you do is associate that feeling with a word, any word that feels right. It could be things like jumpy, heavy, tight, terrified, squirrely, you know, come up with a word. You keep coming up with words until one word feels kind of right. When you match the word with the feeling, then what you do is you put it aside and you go back and you say, what else do I need to know? And once again, you visualize taking that big step. And you see what else is there besides the fear. And maybe excitement will be there. Or maybe a sense of, well, maybe I won't be good enough, or whatever. And you uncover another buried somatic feeling. You give it another name. And you keep doing that until you connect with what he calls a felt shift, where you, come, you connect with an underlying feeling of power and strength that you didn't know was there. And that's buried beneath all the fear, buried beneath all the concerns, buried beneath all the worry. And with that, he would then have people stick with that feeling and nurture it and grow it until now, taking a big step forward in their photography is no longer associated with feelings of fear in their body, but with feelings of strength and confidence. Maybe it doesn't make any sense to you, but it actually, I've used this in my, in my work, and actually it can be very, have very impressive results. Certainly, Focusing has used this and had wonderful, wonderful clinical trials. So that's the second. And finally, there's the basic mindfulness protocol, which has been around for 2,500 years by a guy named the Buddha. You could call him Sid. Sid's his informal name. And uh, the Buddha taught that whenever we're an experience of suffering, dukkha, the most important thing to do is to stop and not pay attention to the thoughts that are happening. So not pay attention to the, uh, all of the beliefs, all of the events that are happening, but to connect with what he called Vedana, which is your feelings, your gut feelings in your body. And just to pay attention, Vedana Nusati, observe the feelings and stay with them. And just like um, the work of Genlin some 2,500 years later, the Buddha instructed to keep 
observing the feelings until they start to change. Hold the image, hold the thing, the event that's causing the dukkha, and continue to observe the feelings until uh, they start to subtly, there's a shift in that. In the Buddha's teachings, very often it's instructed to label the feelings, just like Genlin talked about, to label the feelings, um, what the Buddha used the very basic term, uncomfortable, comfortable, neutral feelings. Keep labeling it until we connect with a feeling that has a greater degree of either comfort or neutrality, and then to stick with that. All of these theories work on one fundamental principle, which is very recently been validated by the work of a great neuropsychologist, uh, Antonio Damasio. Damasio's work in what's called the somatic marker hypothesis showed that when people face important choices, important growth opportunities in their life, the underlying neural event that allows them to choose or makes the choices from for them is not logical faculties, is not rational faculties, is not their dorsolateral of the left brain, but actually when people are asked to choose which job to take, which person to be in a relationship with, where to travel on a vacation, what they do is they check unconsciously their bodies, how their bodies feel. In the work of Daniel Brown and others, the basic principle today in these core new therapies is that if you change the way you feel about any situation or even about yourself, what do you feel when you visualize yourself, then you will change the way you act and you will have far greater capability to break out of the defensive behaviors that kept us trapped in narrow, repetitious patterns in our life. That's the talk. <laughs> now I'm actually going to lead you in a meditation where we're going to try out a couple of these uh, theories in practice. And I'm going to ask you to bring to mind a a challenge in your life or an area in your life where you find that there's a degree of, of um, repetition going, going on. And we're going to see if we can begin to change the underlying feeling. And then we're going to switch to what's called our self-reference, the the image we hold of ourselves, and we're going to see if we can change the way we feel physically when we think of ourselves too. And hopefully, between the two, we will give, we will start uh, giving a foundation in some of these approaches to um, these modalities in addressing uh, unskillful behavioral patterns. So thank you for listening, and let's close our eyes and just come to really relaxed physical state. And don't think yourself into a good posture. Just allow your body to rotate back and forward like a top. And just on your, you let your subdominant region, which doesn't do any thinking, it just moves your body on its own. Just allow your body to come to a stop without any conscious supervision. So we're going to start by just taking a nice complete in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles in your face. Show the nerve cluster of the ventral vagal. And then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, relax all of the muscles, unclench the jaw, unfurrow the forehead, soften the micro muscles around the eyes. 
And now let's take another full in-breath and lift up the shoulders like we're trying to lift them above the ears and just hold them up and then begin to rotate them back so that we're opening up our chest as you breathe out through the mouth. Drop the shoulders and the arms and leave the arms lifelessly hanging, the shoulders drooping backwards so the chest is very open. Opening up the cranial uh, nerve cluster is very useful in engaging the vagal break, which actually helps begin to lower blood pressure, lower your the variation in your heartbeat, in your parasympathetic nervous system begins to release acetylcholine, which helps you relax. And then we're going to take one final breath in the series, full in breath and push out your belly like you're breathing into your belly, bloating the belly out. And then as you release the breath ever so slowly from the mouth, soften the belly until it reaches the most pliant, relaxed state. In the Theravada monks emphasize belly breathing as a key principle to samadhi. So just feeling the belly expand with the in-breath, the crest, the fluid movement, and then with the very long, slow out-breath, releasing the belly. And the goal for the first part of the meditation will be to try to incline your exhalations to be twice as long as your inhalation. So if you can count to three on the in-breath, obviously that means to count to six on the out-breath. The longer the exhalations, the more engaged the rest and digest system of the parasympathetic social engaged system. So just really long exhalations. And in the words of the great Ayakema, Buddhist nun, trying to cultivate a state of nowhere to go, nothing to do, nobody to be. We no longer have any self-concept to uphold, no obligations. The first day of a long vacation, trying to get to a state where we come to a complete stop in life where that tendency of the, the mind to march ahead of the body trying to get somewhere, to be somewhere else other than where we are comes to a complete stop. And now the mind is absolutely here in line with the body, not trying to go or be anywhere else. And that means putting aside thoughts of anywhere else. If you find that a thought has pulled your mind away from just landing in your life, don't feel any frustration. View this as a wonderful opportunity to ingrain the way out. 
it's like ingraining the circuits in the brain that help you escape from all the mental obsessions and worries and fears. Each time you bring your awareness back to your body, back to the breath, back to the sounds around you, you're creating a neural pathway that will make it easier in future times when you're caught up in stressful dynamics and conflicts to step out.
So as we move into the second part of the meditation, let's first start by grounding in the spine. Imagine that the lowest part of your spine, your spinal column, there's this ball of energy, a life force, and it's slowly moving up your spine, and with each movement up, it straightens and brings life and vitality, and you unfurl and open much like plants in warm weather, opening up towards the sun, just feeling this movement of energy going up your spine, reaching its fruition, the base of the skull, just lifting slightly the chin so that prevents us from slouching. So much of the early emotional traumas and wounds of our attachment years in infancy are kept in place by via contracted tight bodies so opening and now I'd like you to bring to mind any challenge unsatisfactory area, domain in your life, a feeling of lack of realized goals or situations that have caused feelings of disappointment. We could have a very could be very detailed, like and feeling afraid of speaking up in social settings, or it could be generic lack of confidence in pursuing one's art fear of changing one career to another, a sense of overwhelm that happens when we try to move into a new growth choice in our life, reaching out to new friends, just think of some area where we feel stuck use a common phrase and then hold that an image that represents the activity we would like to do but that has seemed so outside of our reach but finally speaking our needs in a relationship, standing up for ourselves in a workplace, promoting our art, pursuing our dreams, reaching out to new friends. What is it that we struggle to do? And then while you hold that image, just connect with whatever you feel in your body as you visualize taking this milestone. What is trapped, what is lodged below that makes this so daunting, so difficult, so challenging? Wherever we're stuck, there's going to be a feeling a feeling in the body, a feeling in the throat, in the face, in the abdomen. <coughs> and if nothing is evoked, just visualize pushing yourself a little further. You might just feel a slight sense of queasiness around the throat. 
maybe just a slight furrowing, clenching of the teeth, furrowing the brow. See if you can activate some of the feelings that would create the distress when we actually try to take these big steps. And once you have any feeling, just stay with it. And then without overthinking it, give it a name. It could be something as basic as fear, shame, weariness, tiredness. feeling like a frog. Jumpy. <laughs> See if you can just free associate a word that just feels like it encapsulates the feeling. this were a real extended period of time, we'd spend a significant degree, period, finding and connecting and labeling. But just for the sake of this practice, think whatever you've connected with, no matter how small or subtle, no matter how faint, just thank you. And then turning again to this image, this big step forward that we are frightened of making, this liberative step. And again, ask what is there in the body? What do I need to feel about this? Perhaps the same feelings will emerge, but perhaps another feeling. giving it a name. And we would repeat this process until we connected with a feeling that had a greater sense of strength, that had a body sense of, this is something I can do buried beneath all the tightness, fear, contraction, maybe not confidence, but maybe a sense of something else, a felt shift, as Genlin put it. Now, finally, for our second exercise, what I'd like you to do is visualize something in your life that you feel very proud of, something that you've done. It doesn't have to be an achievement. It could be some time you've helped someone. 
maybe something you've created, maybe a developmental milestone, getting sober, putting aside an addiction, If you can't think of anything that you feel proud of, visualize something you'd like to do that you would feel proud of. And while you hold this image, just try to breathe into your chest and expand your chest, create an open, full, energized body. If you'd like, you can put a hand on your heart center Feel the warmth there. Feel the sense of strength, the sense of esteem. And then what we're going to do now is change the image to of how we would look in the mirror. Our self-representation. Hold an image of yourself while you feel this strong body filled with esteem. And just link your image with a sense of somatic strength. Visualize yourself, feel a sense of strength, openness, ease, comfort in your body. And then whenever you're ready, you can let the image go, relax and breathe comfortably again. And in a moment, I'm going to ring the bell, so just allow yourself to take your time. Open your eyes as slowly as you like, trying to bring an awareness of any feelings of slighter degree of release, comfort, strength, anything that you've connected with that you'd like to bring with you into the rest of your life, bring an awareness of that with you into the rest of the evening. <coughs> So obviously the goal would be in the, the focusing technique, you keep visualizing the action, the area in your life where we would like to take a major step forward. You keep doing it until you connect with a feeling that has a greater degree of strength or openness or some shift to it. and then. In our lives, when we face that situation, we purposely, before we address it, try to reactivate that feeling. I hope that is clear. So you try to reconnect with that feeling before you engage once again at the activity itself.